This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy Isabek from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, October 7th. Today, the Republican reckoning over the president's possible impeachment, melting permafrost in Siberia, and voices from the Hong Kong protests. So broadly speaking, what have we seen from Republicans so far in terms of how they're responding to the impeachment inquiry? You know, it's interesting. There's a bit of a paralysis right now in the Republican Party. We're seeing varying degrees of silence. Phil Rucker is the White House bureau chief for The Post. And he's been reporting on what Republican lawmakers have been saying about the impeachment inquiry, or in many cases, what they're not saying. Do you think it's okay for President Trump to ask China to launch an investigation of Joe Biden and Hunter Biden? I don't know if that's a real request or him just uh, needling the press, knowing that you guys were going to get outraged by it. Clearly, they want to stand with their president, who's the leader of their party. I don't think it's a real request. I think, again, I think he did it to gig you guys. They also clearly have concerns about his conduct. Some have expressed those concerns publicly. Most of them have not. I can't speak for him. I'll just say that I can't speak for him. But for the most part, they're really trying to dodge questions to buy more time. There's a real uncertainty in the Republican Party about what tomorrow might bring. We've seen over the last couple of weeks of this impeachment inquiry just new facts keep emerging that contradict the White House talking points and the defenses, and that's been a problem for them. Yeah, it seems like the silence becomes more and more notable as this evidence is mounting. Tell me about some of the stuff that we've seen, especially over the last week. A couple of things have happened. Initially, uh, when this impeachment inquiry began, the talking point from Republicans was, oh, you know, the president's conduct on this call was hearsay. It's just reported by the media. You can't believe that. Well, voila, the White House releases the transcript of the call with the Ukrainian president and, and lays out in pretty plain English and detail what happened on that call. So that argument went out the window. Then Republicans were arguing, well, it's not a quid pro quo. That would be a problem, but the president's not doing any sort of quid pro quo here. And then we saw last week some text messages emerge from a pair of diplomats, U.S. diplomats in the Trump administration, who made pretty clear in their conversations that this was, in fact, a quid pro quo, that the United States was withholding foreign aid to Ukraine, military aid for Ukraine, until President Zelensky agreed to do these investigations. And then there is also more evidence that suggests that there was some involvement or at least awareness about this from Vice President Pence, from Rick Perry. And that's a big deal. What we're seeing now is that the conduct, the behavior was not limited to President Trump himself, that he had all these other people in the administration who were in some way a part of what was happening here. It's unclear if they'll be identified as co-conspirators down the road, if it's going to be that serious. But clearly, they're sort of in on what's going on, starting with Vice President Pence, but also including the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of Energy, Rick Perry, a number of diplomats 
diplomats at the State Department. Even the White House acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, was involved, according to our reporting, in delaying that funding for Ukraine, the military funding. And there could be more information that comes out because there are other whistleblowers that appear to be coming forward. That's right. So we have the one whistleblower complaint that was made public that everyone dissected about a week ago. Uh, But there's word over the weekend that a second whistleblower has come forward, is in talks with counsel and presenting some corroborating information that just simply bolsters the evidence brought forward by that first whistleblower. There, of course, could be additional whistleblowers. One thing to keep in mind, by the way, is that that initial whistleblower in the complaint cited a number of other sources, people who were working in the White House in the intelligence community, who provided information to the whistleblower, who provided firsthand accounts of the president's conduct to this whistleblower. And so some of those people may feel compelled either now or in the weeks to come to come forward, either publicly or in private to Congress, or perhaps even be deposed or testify in this proceeding on the House. So how are Republican lawmakers talking about this privately, behind closed doors? Behind closed doors, according to the reporting that Bob Costa and I did over the weekend, Republican senators are having these hushed conversations about morality, about what's right and what's wrong, about the law, about whether the president's conduct with these foreign leaders violated that in some way or some some kind. But we've only really seen one Republican senator give voice to that publicly, and that's Mitt Romney of Utah, the 2012 GOP presidential nominee. So what exactly did Romney say? So Romney tweeted Friday, by all appearances, the president's brazen and unprecedented appeal to China and to Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden is wrong and appalling. That's a very direct statement uh, from a Republican. He's not exactly calling for the president to be removed from office or impeached, but he's making very clear that he views this conduct as wrong. And he is pretty much out of step with the rest of the Republican Party on this, at least what they're saying publicly. I think the more common approach that you're seeing from Republicans is along the lines of what Senator Joni Ernst said recently. That's exactly right. Joni Ernst was pressed pretty aggressively by one of her constituents at a town hall meeting last week in Iowa who said, where is the line? When are you going to stand up for the country, stand up for the Constitution? When are you guys going to start standing up and actually be there for us? Okay, so President Trump. um, And Joni Ernst seemed a little bit at a loss for words. I can say yay, nay, whatever the president is going to say, what the president is going to do. It's up to You know, the president's going to say and do what he wants to do, and there's nothing I, I, as a senator, can do about it. It's up to us as members of Congress to continue working um, with our allies, making sure that we remain strong. And I think we've seen other examples of people really defending the president robustly. Yeah, you know, it's been so interesting to watch Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin the last few days. Senator Johnson, welcome back to Meet the Press, sir. Morning, Chuck. Let me start with something you told the Wall Street Journal. Because he actually did an interview with the Wall Street Journal where he recounted having raised concerns with President Trump directly about a possible quid pro quo with Ukrainian military aid. And then he did this interview with Chuck Todd on Meet the Press Sunday. First, before I start answering all the detailed questions, let me just talk about why I'm pretty sympathetic with what President Trump has gone through. You know, I'm 64 years old. I have never in my lifetime seen a president 
after being elected, not having some measure of well wishes from his opponents. And totally backed away from what he had told the Wall Street Journal and was just completely in lockstep behind Trump all the way down to raising conspiratorial theories about what happened in the 2016 campaign. There's one, there's a key question I want to answer. Talking about whether the CIA and FBI and the rest of the intelligence community were in cahoots to try to deny Trump the presidency. They okay. actually did. And I don't know to what extent the Ukrainians did. I don't know to what extent DNC and Hillary Clinton campaign were involved in kind of juicing up the Ukrainian involvement. This is well. just ask There us? are a lot of unanswered questions. Chuck, I just want the truth. I mean, this is the kind of language and, and talk we've heard often from the president and from some of his uh, more fringy allies in the House. But we don't usually hear that from, you know, sitting United States senators. But it speaks to how cowed these senators are and how how much they feel they have to stand by the president's side and parrot his points. After, after James Comey. You believe the uh, FBI Peter, and Peter the CIA. Trump, John Brennan. No, I don't agencies. trust any of these guys in the Obama okay. administration. I don't trust any of them. You don't trust them now? So for other rank-and-file Republicans, what are the competing interests here? Like if they're worried behind the scenes about things like morality and right and wrong, then why aren't we hearing more of that publicly? What we're not hearing much publicly, in part because the Republicans and all of America, frankly, sees this as a very fast-moving story, and nobody quite knows where it's going. We don't know uh, what more is there, how deep this conspiracy goes on the part of the Trump administration uh, to, to pressure Ukraine on the investigation. It's just uncertain. So they're trying to buy some time until they know where it's all headed. But the internal debate for Republicans is between your own sort of morals and values as an elected official for America, your own place in history, frankly, this is a historic moment for our country, and the political reality that they're looking at, which is that Trump is hugely popular, has a commanding control over the Republican base right now. So the polling, the public polling shows a slight uptick in support among all Americans for this impeachment inquiry and for removing the president from office. But among Republican voters, there's virtually no support for impeachment. In fact, I think 80-something percent of Republicans in this country oppose the impeachment inquiry. And, and Trump is simply unchallenged in his party. So these senators are afraid of being primaried. They're afraid of losing their power or their seats if they were to speak up uh, against the president. And I think the one Republican lawmaker who has really tapped into that is Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who had exactly. this campaign ad this weekend that was basically making the case that if you want to see, if you don't want to see President Trump impeached, the key to preventing that from happening is by continuing to have Republican majority in the Senate. That's right. I think that was a very clear message from the leader of Senate Republicans that uh, the Senate is not about to turn on President Trump. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen eventually, though. And is President Trump doing anything to try to keep Republicans in line and keep them in his support? He is. It's called fear. He's trying to scare Republicans and make them feel terrified, frankly, of crossing him. And it's one of the reasons he hit back so hard and so relentlessly over the weekend about Mitt Romney calling him pompous, saying the people of Utah should impeach their own senator, which, by the way, is not even a process. There's no, no such thing as impeaching a senator. <laughs> uh, but the president is using those tweets not only to intimidate Romney, but more importantly, to, to intimidate all the other Republicans who might be thinking about betraying the president. So what is going to happen next? 
Isn't that the great question? <laughs> I really don't know. I wish I knew. Um, you know, we're going to learn more details, I think, over the next few days, especially about this uh, second whistleblower who's come forward. I think the, the congressional inquiry is moving at a very fast pace. And, and with that, we could see more discoveries, more uh, testimony. There could be more details about the various interactions with Ukraine. There seems to be this web here within the administration. It goes far beyond that one phone call that President Trump made with his counterpart on July 25th to other calls, other meetings, other visits, other messages that were delivered by, by various envoys, and of course the role of the president's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. And so we'll just look for more information to put this puzzle together at a very fast pace. They want to try to bring this case to an end by the Thanksgiving period, and that's pretty soon. And so we're, we should look for some movement in the House. Phil Rucker is the White House bureau chief for The Post. get there, we report for about four days, and then it's like, well, there's no tickets. This place is, if you look on the map, it's it's halfway between the Sea of Okhotsk in the south and the Arctic Ocean. And so we had to take just a regular, like, open-top motorboat for 400 miles upstream. It was 29 hours of travel on the boat, including four hours of sleep. Otherwise, we were just on the boat the whole time. And then we had another 10 hours driving to the city of Magadan. And that whole trip, that 400-mile, 29-hour trip upriver, there was not a single settlement, not a single village that whole way. This is reporter Anton Troyanovsky. Where did we go? We went to northeastern Siberia. Anton traveled to northern Siberia as part of the Post series on climate change. It's called 2C. It's a project that looks at the spots on the planet that have already warmed past 2 degrees Celsius, the threshold where scientists say irreversible harm sets in. And in many parts of Siberia, the temperature has already risen roughly 3 degrees Celsius since pre-industrial times. That's 5.4 degrees Fahrenheit, triple the global average. And it's causing massive changes to Russia's permafrost zone and the lives of the 5.4 million people who live there. The ecosystem and human life in rural Siberia really revolves around permafrost. On the most basic level for nature, it provides this underground store of water. So every summer... Some of that top layer of permafrost thaws, releasing water into the earth and feeding the trees. So, you know, you might think of Siberia as this barren wasteland, but in fact, much of Siberia is covered by a very dense forest called taiga. And the reason the forest there is so dense, even though the climate is rather dry, is because of that permafrost existing underground and releasing water into the environment. So historically, who has lived in this part of Russia and what is life like for them? I was on the Kolyma River. And if you say the word Kolyma to an average Russian, that immediately conjures up images of 
the gulag labor camps of incredible unimaginable cold of incredible remoteness and desolation this area has always been really one of the most difficult places in Russia i think even in the world for people to adapt to and inhabit it's about a million people who live in this region called yakutia where we went they're trying they're scrambling to adapt to climate change so how is it changing so the key thing is that the winters are getting shorter which means that the number of days of below freezing temperatures is decreasing and that means uh, the permafrost has less time to freeze in the winter and more time to thaw in the summer in the 1970s the permafrost would thaw on average 2 feet below ground every summer now it's down to 3 feet the top 3 feet of the ground are thawing so that just means way more water is getting released into the ground every summer because of that extra foot of thawing and what does that mean for life in that part of siberia it's been a hugely dramatic change the short version of what is the change it's there's more water everywhere you know you just imagine you have this incredible store of ice just underground that in the past never melted and now it's melting every year so all of that water is being released into the ground in the summer causing pasture land to flood causing rivers to flood way more than they used to what are some of the other ways that that the fact that the ground is melting so much more than it used to that that is being noticed by people who live there I mean first of all just the physical aspect to it is really dramatic. You walk along the street in the city there Yakutsk and you see houses that are getting deformed where the the middle part of the house is kind of depressed toward the ground. But the house is is actually kind of caving in. Yeah, yeah, wow. exactly. And roads are caving in and uh you know again you visit a pasture and people will tell you yeah this used to be perfectly flat land and now there's a lake there now you know this this right here is where this road used to go and now it's just a bunch of kind of gullies and what not another dramatic effect of all this is all that carbon all that plant and animal matter that's stored up in the permafrost so that stuff's coming out number 1 that means more carbon is being released into the atmosphere which has consequences for the greenhouse uh, effect in the atmosphere but there's also very big pieces of formerly frozen animal life emerging Siberia used to be a home for the woolly mammoth which died out about 10,000 years ago on the continent and these formerly frozen pieces of mammoth or sometimes even whole almost entire mammoths are emerging with increasing frequency in part because of this accelerated thawing of the permafrost. Whoa, so these like giant fossilized mammoth bones are are appearing out of nowhere. Well, they're not even fossilized, they're frozen. I mean, there's literally blood and tissue and the stuff that was in their stomach is still in there. Whoa. That's I mean, honestly, that's kind of cool. 
Yeah, I mean, the reality of this actually was driven home to me when I went out on a little motorboat with one of the hunters in the area who also spends some of his time looking for these mammoths. And as we approached this thawing cliffside, you suddenly smelled this something rotten, something putrid, because that's the smell of formerly frozen organic matter emerging out of the permafrost, making contact with the air and decomposing. And it's having an impact on life in these communities because the thing is that these mammoths, they obviously had these enormous tusks, like elephant tusks. And because of the fact that they've been frozen in the permafrost this whole time, a lot of these mammoth tusks are so perfectly preserved that they're hard to distinguish from elephant tusks. Hmm. And in China in particular, ivory is very much in demand, both for art, for carving, and for traditional medicines. So people are like finding these super old mammoth tusks and I gather like selling them on the black market? Absolutely. Yeah. It's mostly a black market. If you find one good tusk, you can easily make more than $10,000, wow. which in this part of the world, obviously, is is more than you would be making in a regular job in a whole year. Are there still people who are trying to farm? Yeah, there are. There are. They've made a shift in terms of livestock, really focus more on horses, which are more hardy and less labor intensive to maintain than cattle. Then there is, of course, the idea that, well, if it's getting warmer, maybe we can plant things here that we didn't used to be able to plant. So I visited one farmer couple that had just planted their first strawberries. Like strawberries were unheard of as crops in, in you know, this part of the Siberia. I mean, this is the Arctic Circle we're talking about. But they planted strawberries this year and I tried them and they were really sweet and delicious. The other aspect of this, uh, you know, something I heard several times was like, look, life in the north of Russia is really hard and we've always had to adapt. We adapted to communism, we adapted to collective farms, we adapted to the time when the labor camps, when the gulag came, we adapted to the fall of the Soviet Union, we adapted to capitalism. So now climate change is this latest external exogenous shock onto this region. And the question is, can people adapt? Can people survive in the way that they adapted to these previous shocks? What several people there told me was some version of, we used to understand our ecosystem. We used to be able to control nature. And now we don't understand it anymore. Now nature controls us, everything has changed. All the patterns that we grew up learning about and seeing are don't hold anymore. Anton Troyanovsky is a reporter based in Moscow. His story is the latest in the Post-2C series on climate change. You can find a link to his story and others from the project at postreports.com.
What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Protests in Hong Kong have been going on for more than four months. Over the weekend, Chief Executive Carrie Lam announced an emergency ban on face masks. Protesters have been wearing them to conceal their identity. In response to the ban, tens of thousands of people protested. They were wearing Guy Fox masks and surgical masks and even paper bags to hide their faces. But some of the most prominent activists have defied the government since the earliest days of the protests by refusing to wear masks altogether. It is important for me to protest because I believe in these fundamental rights of each and every person. My name is Denise Ho. I am a singer and pro-democracy activist from Hong Kong. I'm Nathan Law, an activist and former lawmaker from Hong Kong. I was elected as the youngest ever lawmaker in Hong Kong in 2016. But under China's intervention, I lost my seat. And uh, more than uh, 50,000 of the voters who voted for me also lost their mandate. My name is Brian Learn. I'm an activist from Hong Kong and also a graduate student in the U.S. I'm afraid of the moment when I like, become old and look back into my life and, you know, there is some moment I did not do the right thing. Joining protests nowadays in Hong Kong is just entering the smoke-surrounded battlefield. Joshua Wong, activist from Hong Kong. The protests began over a bill that would allow Hong Kong to extradite people to China. And while both protesters and police have become increasingly more violent, the demands from protesters have largely remained the same democracy and accountability. We are this hybrid city where we have these values of the Chinese heritage, but at the same time, we have these Western values of freedoms and human rights. Hong Kong has long been the beacon of freedom in Asia and in China. Hong Kong turned from the safe city to be a police state. A lot of Chinese propaganda wanted to depict Hong Kong citizens, Hong Kong protesters, as rioters. But in fact, people coming out, they're not rioters. They're just a group of Hong Kong citizens. When you see the population living in fear, not being able to show their faces in in these protests uh, where we are safeguarding our city, that is the sign that we are in a very critical situation. One country, two systems become a hollow promise that has not been fulfilled by Beijing. The five demands of the protesters are full withdrawal of the bill. We urge government to stop, prosecute and arrest activists. Giving amnesty to protesters who have been arrested or prosecuted. Set up investigation on police brutality, not to blame us and define us as rioters. And lastly, and the most important demand is universal suffrage. If we had the right to choose our own chief executive, if we had the right to vote for our own legislative council, then maybe we would have seeked some sort of harmony within the system of the the communist government. 
My message to Americans is Hong Kong is not just a bargaining chip and a single deal. We are actually your allies in uh, fighting for democracy and building free society. But under the hardline interference of Beijing, it's just strongly eroded on the universal value that we believe in. Hong Kong is at the forefront of the clash of authoritarian and democratic values. So if that forefront fell and the authoritarian values prevails, it cracks our democratic values. And that's the reason for us to have the summer of this content within the past few months. And now is the time to continue to fight for universal suffrage. I don't think it is something that should be accepted in the free world. I will not stop because I think fighting for democracy and freedom is really a lifelong battle. Anyone in America should be speaking up. This self-censorship could come anytime into your lives and it might already be happening. Senior producer of Opinions Video for The Post, Kate Woodson, interviewed Joshua Wong, Nathan Law, Brian Lung, and Denise Ho. To see them and Kate's video, go to postreports.com. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. We recently heard from one listener, Ashlyn Curry, in response to a segment from last week's show about Brand John, the man in court who chose to hug the woman who murdered his brother. She said, quote, Thanks for including Jamar Tisby on Post Reports. I was struggling to articulate my response to the Brant John Amber Geiger scenario. Hearing his take helped put the problems into words for me, and it was finally the trigger for me to subscribe to the Washington Post. You can share your thoughts on Twitter by messaging me or tagging your post with hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.